You're listening to audio from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. If you'd like to check out more resources or learn more about our ministry, please visit holycrosstucson.com. If you have your Bible with you, we'll be in Exodus chapter 3, continuing in our series through the book of Exodus. And we're, only, we're just starting chapter 3. We know we've been there several weeks, but we're now starting to see the, the story really pick up some uh, pace. And let me remind you as we go to Exodus 3 that when we read this story, it's not just a a story in history that's good information. When we, when we open up the pages of Scripture, we're hearing from God. It is God's self, self-revelation. He's letting us know who He is and what He has done. And so we pay attention to this with uh, a heart of gratitude, a heart of uh, reverence and understanding that God desires to speak to us. And so we come with willing hearts and open ears. Uh, I'll read through uh, the first 15 verses of Exodus 3. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see... God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, And I've also seen the oppression of which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain." Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, And the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. This is God's word. In the story of Exodus so far, we have seen a spotlight put on the king of Egypt, the wickedness of the king and his oppression of God's people. We've seen the suffering of God's people at center stage and learning more about the oppression that they lived in. We've even seen the character profile of Moses as we've seen like this character of the kind of human deliverer that God 
was creating and developing, including his failures when he took things into his own hand. And now we see God himself take center stage. Some people, some people uh, talk about the burning bush in their life, right? These burning bush episodes in their life where God acts in such a profound and palpable way and real ways in their life. And that expression gets its origin from this story. The passage describes an encounter between God and Moses. And God is revealing himself to Moses. And in all the characters in Scripture, there is no one more important than God himself. For the Bible is truly about God. The Bible is about God, and apart from knowing God and him revealing himself to us, we would never know anything about him. We would never know what what he was like and his nature and character. We would never know what kind of actions he plans to take in our life, apart from him coming to us, revealing himself to us. And so the Bible is God's self-revelation. And in this opening chapter, of the knowledge of God, author A.W. Tozer claims this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Think about that. What comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. He even goes on to claim that based on the answer that a person might give to the question, who is God, we could predict the spiritual future of that person basically based just simply on what they believe of God. The, the basic point of this is that a right understanding of God is the most important component of our lives for it will direct everything in our life. And it's just for this reason that God goes to such great length to reveal himself to Moses. For what he's asking Moses to do will be utterly contingent on a right understanding of who Moses is. And God is presenting himself to Moses, wanting Moses to know who he is, and then to go with this understanding to bring this news to his people. And so it is for us. God wants us to know him. God wants us to know not just things about him, but a true nature and understanding of who he is. Today, a lot of people like to make kind of up for themselves who God is. They like to define God for themselves. When someone encounters a difficult passage in the Bible, they might say something like this, that's just not how I imagine God to be. Or confronting other things in the Bible, they might say, I just don't like the sound of a God like that. I can't serve a God who would do something like that. It might be his judgment for sin. It might be his sovereignty over all creation. It might be certain moral commands that God gives in his scripture. And when people say that, maybe you've been prone to say that at time, we decide for ourselves what God is like. But we don't get to decide what God is like. God tells us who he is like so that we can have a connected and meaningful and worshipful relationship with him. And just like you, if, if I were wanting to be a, a, a close and have a connection with you and become a friend of yours, but I wanted to make up for myself what you were like and who you are, you might say, well, that's not who I am. You're, you're trying to get close to somebody else. That's not me. And apart from you telling me and revealing to me who you really are, I wouldn't really know who you are. And Christians and others are prone to make a God in our own image. And when we do that, he becomes a God that really is no use to us. He can't help us. And what's at stake is this connected and meaningful relationship with him. If we want a relationship with God, if we want a meaningful connection with him, we 
but we want to define him in our own way, we will create him in our own image and we risk missing him entirely. And so in this passage, God shows us what he's like. He takes center stage and he shows to Moses, this is who I am and what I will do. And I see a few things in here that we can draw out together. First, we are shown this very thing about God, that he is the God who is holy. He is the God who is holy. Notice in the first few verses, Moses Moses does with fire what you and I do with fire when we see it. We're drawn to it. We're drawn to fire. You ever see that? You, You see this fire, this big fire. There's something that's beautiful about it, majestic about it, enticing and captivating that you're drawn to understand more. You're drawn closer to this fire. There's something about fire that just draws us close. I don't know if it's a, a guy thing or a me thing or maybe just a, a universal human thing, but when I'm driving on the road and I see smoke come off all in the distance, I got to see where that's from. I got to go to it. It's like, clear my schedule. This is what my life is about right now. I need to find out what's burning. I need to get close. I need to see. But when we draw close to the fire, you instinctively know that if you get too close, it'll harm you. So there's this weird thing about fire. We are drawn to it for its beauty and its otherness. But we also know that fire commands distance. That fire is, deserves respect and awe. And so it is with God. His holiness commands distance. And so as Moses draws near, as he says to himself, we, we learn through this narrative, he's like, I want to see more. I, this, is, this is interesting. It's beautiful. It's, it, it captivates my creativity. I, I don't know what's really going on here. Something different is happening here. The burning bush is, is no longer the biggest surprise in his life. As he draws near to it, for God's voice crawls out, calls out from within it and says, Moses, don't come any closer, for the ground upon which you stand is holy ground. The word holy means different, distinctive, set apart, other. There is a sense of God that captivates us and draws us close because he's beautiful and majestic, but there's also something about God and his nature that keeps us at a distance. His holiness commands separation. And God is not like us. The more sophisticated term for this is the word transcendence. Transcendence is that that God is transcendent. He is above. He is other. He is separated. He is the God who evokes awe and terror, and we should not treat him lightly. When people encounter God in the Bible, their fear is not because they encounter God and say, I'm small and you're big, and then they are drawn to fear. Whenever God approaches someone in Scripture, you notice the immediate response? They fall down in terror and recognize their own unworthiness. And so this posture is one of, we know that you are holy, you are righteous, you are good, you are perfect, and I am, I am weak and I am, I am unworthy to be in your presence. God's like a bonfire. If you've ever been, we don't do that in the desert a lot because <laughs> that's bad because that causes like fires everywhere. I used to remember going as a kid to bonfires in the Midwest and, you know, they just put pallets and pallets and pallets and wood and it's just this gigantic fire and there's something that draws you in. It's beautiful, it's majestic, 
but you know not to get too close, right? I've lost a couple eyebrows doing that, but you, you know, you don't get too close, but you're drawn close and you say, but it commands my distance because of its power, its holiness, its reverence. This is what God is like. Each Sunday, we rehearse this idea in our opening worship, and James did not fail to do it again today, where he said, God is holy and we are sinners. It is good for us to approach God and recognize that he is transcendent, that he is other than us, and he commands our respect. But when we do that, we are instinctively aware of our unworthiness. His presence exposes our insecurities. It's what happens when I golf with people who halfway through the round only then rec- or realize that I'm a pastor and then they start apologizing for all the words they said, you know, the first half of the morning. Oh, I didn't realize that. I'm so sorry. You know, it's like, forget it, you know, just be yourself. But that's what it's like. It's like coming into this, pre- not, not like I'm not equating myself with the glory of God, but it's coming to the presence of realizing, oh wait, this deserves some of my respect and it recognizes our failures and our unworthiness. But you see, we have to have this understanding of who God is, not because it's convenient for us, but that's how God reveals himself to us. But God's holiness does not mean that he's unapproachable. For he reveals that he is also the God who is personal. Fortunately for us, the command to stay at a distance is not the final word from God within the bush. So he does say, don't come any closer. And then that's not the end of the story. So God does say, I I command distance. My holiness commands distance. But then he moves into this beautiful sequence of phrases from God to Moses that shows us that there's something more about God and who he is more than just his transcendence. God says, you probably noticed as we move through, but he says, I have seen, I have heard, I know, I have come down. And I will bring out my people. What a beautiful sequence of statements. It doesn't sound like a God who prefers to be left alone, does it? It doesn't sound like the God who prefers to be at a distance, but the kind of God who does not know how to be absent from his people. He is holy and there is this gigantic chasm between the holiness of God and the unworthiness of mankind. But God says, I am a personal God and therefore I will be drawn to you. And I will move closer to you and I see you. The creator is not disconnected or impersonal with his creation. He is involved in our lives. He sees what we're going through. Most of us know exactly what it feels like to be forgotten by God or the sense of being forgotten by God or when God seems far away. Perhaps you feel that in your life right now. And we need to pause and see that God is revealing his character to Moses, his identity to Moses. And in that, he is saying he does not know how to be, nor does he have any interest in being absent from the people he loves. I I wonder if you really apply that beautiful sequence of phrases to your life right now. Would you do a couple things with me? I mean, first, will you just, would you picture your present struggle? Will you picture your present circumstances that are bringing you frustration, pain, struggle, discouragement, despair, Would you picture the things that just make you feel like, 
weary from the baggage and burdens of life. Most of you, it's not too difficult to do, for that feels like a shadow that just follows you around everywhere you go. But second, what I want you to do is I want you to hear God's words to you as he says them to Moses. Can you hear God saying to you, I see you, I hear you, I know you, and I'll bring you out of this. I'll bring you into a land of happiness. I'll bring you into a land of peace. I'll bring you out, and I will be with you. Does that feel like a God who doesn't know how to be present with us? Does it feel like a God who is disconnected from us and high and lofty and out of, out of, out of, out of you know, eyes view? No. It sounds like a God who's condescended, who's imminent, who's present. Any sense of struggle, any tear that's shed, any frustration, any, any groaning that happens within our hearts is a God who is intimately aware of the workings of our soul and the emotions going on inside of us. How have you defined God for yourself? I wonder, most of us will either define him only in one of these ways. Either he's just transcendent or he's just imminent and personal and relational. Right? Typically, we think God of completely one way or another. But God is holy and personal. Where are you prone to define God in error based on one of those things? You know that a huge majority of people in America claim to believe that there is a God. And when I say a huge majority, it's like 85, 90% of Americans say, I believe in a higher power, I believe there's a God, I believe that there's a transcendent being kind of over everything. But do you know about 40% of all those people say or believe that that transcendent God is intimately involved in our day-to-day lives? Most people will say, I believe there is a God who is holy and unapproachable, and, and, and I don't meet up to those standards, but he doesn't care about me. He's not involved in my life. He doesn't see me. And if he does see me, he can't really interject and do anything about it. And if you're wondering, that number gets smaller and smaller and smaller every single year for the last 20 years. More and more people every single year are struggling to believe that there's a God who sees, knows, cares about our struggles and will do anything about it. And there are some who think that God is just this very personal God, that he loves us, forgives us, and and we take him too lightly. Maybe the person who designed the shirt that says, Jesus is my homeboy, right? Anybody have that shirt? (laughs) That's okay. Um, So God doesn't command obedience. He doesn't command respect or reverence. He's just, he just cares. But God is both. And this holy and personal God knows you. He sees you. And he sees you not in a general way. He sees you in a personal way. If you could hear him telling you, "I, I, I know the hairs on your head. I know how many hairs fell out and are in that brush this morning. I know, I know everything. I, I, I hold your life in my hands. I hem you in from danger. I allow everything that happens in your life to come to pass. It passes through my hand. I see you. I know you. I hear your cries. And I, I have come down to bring you out of this into a land 
of peace and joy. You know, God says, I have come down. Not just he knows us. It's important to know that God does not look at our struggles from a distance. You know, because there's one thing to like talk to a friend at a distance on the phone and, say, and, and that friend say, I'm so sorry for what is going on. Over the summer, I had a, a friend say, t- you know, I was sharing my struggles with him and he said, I'm coming down right now. There's a difference with someone that says, I will come to be with you. I will come to sit with you. I will come to care for you. It's, it's different with someone that's, that rolls up their sleeves and enters into our suffering and enters into his people's story. And this is the God of the Bible. He reveals himself in these very pointed and clear ways. And when he comes down, he tells us more information about himself. He tells us that he is enough. Not only is he a God who is powerful and compassionate, but he is a God who is enough for us, so much so that when we have God, we have need for no one and nothing else. Moses asks this question of God. He says, who am I? So God says, I've come and here's what I'm going to do. And you're going to go and you're going to talk to Pharaoh and you're going to bring out my people from slavery. And he asks the question, who am I? Right? A fair question. And one of the things that our modern culture has invited people into is to ask this question, who am I? What is my identity? How do I fit into this world? Why am I important? An identity has become this flexible notion. It's become a flexible aspect of our life. We can in some ways and are encouraged to in many ways in our culture to reinvent ourselves every single day. And so if we were to ask the question, who am I? Our culture might say, who do you think you are? Who do you want to be? And so we can, it's a malleable thing. It's a flexible thing. And in a world of choices, this can create a tremendous amount of social angst and anxiety and psychological trauma. There's a reason I like going to In-N-Out versus Cheesecake Factory. It's, it's a decision between one patty or two patties versus I need some water and an aspirin to read the rest of this menu. Too many choices. Identity is something that we receive from God. The answer to our question, who am I, is an answer we receive from God, but we often make it into something that we achieve in this life. Our value, our self-worth, our self-esteem, our lovability, has become something that we must achieve, and it creates great emotional, relational, spiritual, and psychological confusion. And Moses begins to show some of that anxiety. When God says, this is what you're going to do, Moses starts to show some vulnerability and insecurity And as the conversation goes on, that insecurity grows. And he asks God, who am I? Why am I fit to do this? And God answers, I will be with you. What kind of an answer is that to that question? That is not an answer. That is such a strange, who am I? I'll be with you. That doesn't answer my question. You're not alone if you have asked God a question And he gives you an answer that doesn't seem to fit at all. Will I ever find a loving spouse? Purple. 
what does that have to do with just what I asked? God does this over and over and over again. He sees our struggle, he looks at our confusion, and he looks beyond it and points us to the very thing that we need that we become distracted from actually seeing. Not only is I will be with you an answer, it is the answer. I know what would have made Moses encouraged and because it's the same thing that would have encouraged me to hear. Who am I, God? And what makes me capable of doing what you've asked me to do? Oh, Moses, you're the best man for the job. Moses, I've looked around and there's no one like you. Moses, I've been preparing you for this your entire life and you are ready. Moses, you have skills, you have the competency, you have the winsomeness, you have the personality, you have the strength of character. Moses, you are the guy for this job, and that's why I've chosen you. All right, I'm ready. Put me in, God. Those are the answers I want to hear when I say, God, why me? I want him to hear because you're good enough, strong enough, and doggone it, people like you. I want God to talk about my character. I want him to talk about my skills. I want him to talk about why I can do what he desires me to do. I want him to make me feel good about me. And God doesn't do any of that. God is the one who will make the difference. He is enough. And Moses must know this. If Moses will be a faithful servant and an effective servant for God, he must know that the fruit of all that God is calling him into will have nothing to do with Moses and everything to do with God. Why me? Who am I? And God says, I will be with you. Moses does not need to have a better self-esteem. Moses does not need to learn better skills. Moses needs to have a greater sense of the presence and love of God in his life. And that is what will make the difference for him. Because the person who has God is never alone. The person who is in the presence of God needs nothing else. Everything that Moses will ever need to know about anything and everything ever is the answer to the question, who am I? And the response of God that says, I will be with you. Is that enough for you? What if that was the response God gave as you cried out to God in your pain and suffering and conflict in this world and you said, what are you going to do, God? And he just simply replied, I will be with you. Fine, but show me the sequence of events. Show me the answers. And he just simply says, I will be with you. And the strange thing that he does was something, again, that we, we don't like, and we, I'm sure Moses didn't like it. And he says, here's how you can be sure that I am being truthful to what I say. When all this happens, you'll worship me on this mountain. <laughs> no, don't give me a sign after. Give me a sign before. After you do all these things, here's how you'll know. He's calling us to trust in him. He's calling us to walk by faith. He's calling us to trust in him because he is who he is and he is with us. Everything that Moses will ever need is God. And our failures do not affect God's presence. Our confidence is established in the fact that God is with us 
And as we walk through life and through difficulty, he walks with us. And Moses then asks another question, maybe unsatisfied by the first answer. He says, okay, well then who are you? If it doesn't matter who I am and you say that my confidence is on you, then I need to know who you are. And this reveals the final point about God is that he is the God who is real. Now, when I say he is real, in a sense that I do mean he, he really exists. But in a, in a greater sense, in a more truer sense, I mean he is real in the sense that he is really who he is. He really is who he says he is, and we must come to terms with who that is. So when I say that God is the God who is real, he is revealing himself in a certain way, and you and I need to look at that and, and reckon with it. We need to come to terms with who he says he is and believe him as he really is, rather than some fabricated, made-up imagination of who he is. Coming to America 2 was released not long ago, so it reminded me of the first movie, so I had to go back and watch that, right? And in the first movie, there's a scene where Prince Hakim was to be wed to his bride, and this bride is conditioned from birth to basically do whatever the prince had said, right? So she didn't have a conscience or preference on her own. The prince would ask, what is your favorite color? And she says, whatever your favorite color is. And he says, what kind of music do you like? And she says, whatever kind of music you like. And she can't give an answer. She's conditioned to say, whatever makes you happy, whatever makes you comfortable. When Moses asks God, who should I say sent me when they ask? He says, tell them I am who I am. Tell them I am has sent you. Another strange answer, right? God is not conditioned to say whatever he needs to say to make us feel comfortable. He tells us who he really is. Does this sound like the God who you can put in your pocket like a lucky, like a lucky charm? Does this sound like the God who wants to be your co-pilot? Does this sound like the kind of God who takes instruction and direction from anyone? Does it sound like a God who, who, who worries about rubbing you the wrong way with his answers? doesn't sound like an insecure God that just wants you to be comfortable with his answers when he says, okay, who are you? And he says, I am who I am. What does that mean? You know, it's like when a young boy comes up to an older man and seeks to instruct him in a certain way, confident that he knows better, and the older man replies to the younger boy, son, I have shoes older than you. God has no need to prove himself to anyone. He has no need to, to, to present his resume. God has no need and no insecurity for who he is. And now God is not being smug. He's not being sarcastic with Moses, but he's proving a point. He is distinguishing himself from all other powers, all other deities, all other sources of wisdom. He is dependent on nothing, and everything and everyone is fully dependent on God. And God has no problem revealing himself in that way. I am who I am, and that is all I am. There's not a category that God fits into. It is not like a, a a good, better, or best. There's not a hierarchy of skills and God just ranks at the top. God is transcendent above all that. He is in a different category. He is creator. He is eternal. He is almighty. He is simply I am. 
And the Bible adds some description to his name, and it's astonishing when we hear it in awareness of the rest of the Bible, where then God goes on to say, and this is how I will be known forever. And every generation will come to know me as I am. That's God's name. He reveals himself in that way. And this is what made it so unbelievably and offensive, unbelievably offensive when Jesus began to refer to himself as, you guessed it, I am, over and over and over again in the scriptures. And the people of Jesus' day began to put it together that Jesus was claiming to be the great I am, transcendent, holy, personal, from which the all of creation was made by, for, through Christ. That they picked up stones to kill him. They were filled with rage and anger. That this common person was claiming to be the great I am. And perhaps the most significant time Jesus identified himself as I am was the night before he was crucified. An angry mob came to arrest Jesus. Picture this. Jesus is in the garden. He is He is isolated, and a mob comes to arrest him, and he approaches them, and there's a standoff. And he he says, who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I am. And you know what they did? They stumbled upon themselves and fell to the ground. Why? The same response that was being spoken from the burning bush that caused Moses to hide his face and fall to the ground is the same power present there in Jesus Christ as he speaks to this mob and they knew exactly what he was saying. And they gathered themselves and they picked themselves back up and Jesus says, let me ask you again, who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth? (laughs) And he said, I am. And then he willingly gives himself over to the, the mob to be arrested, beaten, and killed. Jesus, who seemed like this ordinary person, was taking upon himself the name and identity of God Almighty. And this God Almighty, not just powerful God, but the one who came down to dwell with his people and to save his people, he is now willingly giving himself up to save and rescue his people. Why is this so important to see this correlation the, the more we make ourselves our lives about Jesus, the less we will make it about ourselves, the less we will make it about our failures, our achievements, our abilities, our inadequacies, or even our questions. Who am I or who are you? Is, this is God who knows us, created us, sees our struggle. He hears our groaning and he comes down and he gives himself for the people he loves to rescue us and to bring us up into a land of peace and love with him. By Moses, by, by using Moses to accomplish his deliverance, God is giving us a preview of the day where he will come down to deliver his people, not as fire, but as flesh. As God comes down, As fire, he is giving us a preview that he will come down again, this time as flesh. And he will deliver his people, not out of the hands of the Egyptians, but out of their slavery to sin. Not by parting the Red Sea, but by dying on the cross and by rolling away a stone. And it's only in this reality that the great and true I am came to us. 
to respond to our cries for help, to die for us and to bring us to himself, that we will fill our lives, it will fill our lives with meaning and it will make sense of all of our suffering. Israel's bondage is a picture of our bondage in sin until we come to God in faith. We are living in the Egypt of our sin. We are enslaved by its passions and desires. And just as the children of Israel were under Pharaoh's whip, we are under the devil's spell. And if we are to be rescued, the God who knows us, sees us, created us, and is both beautiful, powerful, and mighty, had to come down to save us and give himself for us. You know, I, the I am came down in compassion and power to fulfill his promises to his people to deliver them from slavery in Egypt. And when God came down in the person of Jesus Christ, he not only condescended to earth, but he descended unto death to accomplish our deliverance. But there's another coming down that we still wait for. You see, there's a looking forward for us. And just as God's people were rescued from Egypt, they were wandering in the desert and there was still a, so God said, I will rescue you from slavery and I will bring you into this land of, this broad land with milk and honey. I guess milk and honey was like really great back then. <laughs> like, I'll do anything for milk and honey. Tell me what and I'll do it. So, you know, like Nutella and pancakes, whatever your thing is now. So God says, I will bring you into this land that is a land of joy, a land of peace, a land of love. But it took them a long time to get there, and many never entered. It's kind of like where we are right now. There's a number, another coming down that we are looking for. We see God come down in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He dies on the cross. He forgives our sins. He resurrects from the grave, and bring, and bringing power and triumph over death and sin. And yet you and I still wait. We still groan. We still have hard days, and we live in a broken world. And I want you to imagine the Egyptians groaning and crying out to God for help and see how you continue to groan and cry out for help today. Crying out for deliverance from division, from disappointment, from work and struggle, from emotional anguish, from betrayal, from marital brokenness, from temptations that seem to just not leave you alone, from stress, from loneliness, from sick children and dying loved ones. We continue to cry out for I am to come down and finish what he started. And the same God who hears their cries hears yours. He came down. He offered himself in weakness to save us from what we could not save ourselves from. And he will come again. And this time not to pay the penalty for sin, but this time to rule in his glory and power over all of creation, and we will reign with him in a land that is without sin and that is of peace and love, that is filled with his grace and mercy. And it's through this relationship with Jesus, through looking at Christ, the God who has come down, who hears our cries, who sees our pain, and who brings us into relationship with God. It is through trusting in him that we come into the saving relationship with God. I want to close with this phrase from 
This invitation that Charles Spurgeon once told to his church that I want to tell to you now. Will you hear these words? Sinner, tell God your misery even now. And he will hear your story. He's willing to listen even to that sad and wretched tale of yours about your multiplied sins, your hardness of hearts, your rejections of Christ. Tell him all, for he will hear it. Tell him what it is you want. What large mercy, what great forgiveness. Just lay your whole case before him. Do not hesitate. For a single moment, he will hear it, and he will be attentive to the voice of your cry.